0: So why did Kennedy allow the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962 to spin sickeningly towards nuclear war? He could have negotiated from the start. Previously at the History Cafe, we've seen that he was afraid of a backlash in the midterm elections, a couple of weeks away, elections in which he had to do well. In the end, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev made an offer to end the crisis. It all seemed to be over, but then Khrushchev changed his mind.
1: So, to remind you, Khrushchev's first offer was to withdraw his missiles from Cuba in return for an American promise not to invade. Since there were over 50,000 Soviet military personnel on the island, calling off a US invasion was the easiest decision Kennedy would have to make. He'd already halted an invasion in August 1962. But then, Khrushchev demanded the Americans also remove the nuclear missiles trained on the Soviet Union and stationed in Turkey impatient to resolve the crisis, he had his new demand read out on Moscow radio.
0: 27th of October 1962, day 13 of the crisis, was a Saturday, and Kennedy's advisers, sitting as the Executive Committee, or XCOM, met at 10 o'clock in the morning Washington time. Kennedy's wise men thought they were meeting to discuss Khrushchev's original no-invasion demand. A few minutes into the meeting, they were astonished to be told about a new demand broadcast on Moscow radio, this time to remove the Turkish missiles. Well, not everyone in the room was astonished, of course, since, as we've seen, Jack and Bobby Kennedy had been pushing exactly this Turkish missile swap for days now. But they told nobody in XCOM or anywhere else. They'd been sending messages to Moscow through a shady collection of journalists and an out of favour Soviet spy called Georgi Bolshakov. Faced with this new Soviet demand, apparently out of the blue, the assembled military and security brass and ex-con They thought they got Khrushchev on the run. They weren't going to be pushed around by him now.
1: And what happened next has become the most famous myth of the whole Cuba missile saga. Schoolchildren are taught that when news of Khrushchev's new demands arrived, Bobby Kennedy had a stroke of genius. Eisenhower-like, they would ignore it. They would just agree to the no invasion demand and ignore the Turkish missiles bit. Security
0: advisor McGeorge Bundy supposedly nicknamed this cunning idea of deliberate misunderstanding the Trollope ploy. They would graciously agree only not to invade. If Khrushchev came back pushing for the Turkish missile swap as well, he would look like the aggressor. It supposedly reminded Bundy of a similar trick played by young maidens in novels by the 19th century writer Anthony Trollope though, in that case, they were deliberately mistaking innocent signs of friendship for proposals of marriage, and then embarrassing their young men into going through with it.
1: Fascinating that McBundy, with his stint on Yale's literary magazine, was so up on Victorian literature. Anyway, the trollop ploy has gone down as a textbook case, taught to diplomats as the way to deal with difficult dictators. But the trollop ploy was an invention, a later myth. We know exactly when it was invented and by whom and we'll come back to that later. What's important here is that historian Sheldon Stern has studied the tapes for that day's meetings of XCOM, and what they show is that Jack Kennedy fought all day to get XCOM to accept the Turkish deal. Let's not kid ourselves, he said. They've got a very good proposal. Well, Kennedy would say that, since he'd originally suggested it to the Soviets through his dubious and secret back-channel and had basically already agreed to it on the phone at Bobby Kennedy's off-the-record meeting with the Soviet ambassador the night before. And his diplomats had been trying to get exactly this deal secretly proposed through the UN, so that the Brits and others of his allies already knew about it. But of course, the only other person in XCOM who knew about it was his brother Bobby Kennedy. All the others thought the Kennedy brothers had been playing the tough guys and refusing all negotiations.
0: Anyway, by now the crisis had succeeded in delivering the excellent approval ratings Kennedy had so badly needed ahead of the midterm elections. Now he very much needed to bring it to a close before anyone got hurt. Of course, he knew from the conversation with the ambassador the night before that doing the Turkish deal would deliver exactly that. But as we've said before, Kennedy had created a monster. When he tried to get XCOM to accept this reasonable Cuban-Turkish missile deal, he found the whole room against him. They were all for what later became known as the Trollope ploy, ignoring the Turkish missile swap and accepting no invasion as the basis of a deal. And the tapes show beyond doubt that that included Bobby Kennedy, even though from the start he'd been in on making the back-channel offers. At four in the afternoon that day, news arrived that an American U-2 spy plane had been shot down over Cuba, and the room stiffened even more. Now Bobby and all the others began loudly demanding an invasion. I'd like to take Cuba back, Bobby can be heard saying, in a rather unguarded phrase that revealed the Americans' frustration at losing what they long regarded as an unofficial colony. That, added Bobby, would be nice. Now the President was the only one in the room arguing for any kind of deal at all.
1: So by the time the meeting broke up late in the afternoon, the best Kennedy had been able to do was to get XCOM to agree not to invade. He said he would go back and see if Khrushchev would accept that, He wouldn't mention taking out Turkish missiles as well. He told them he couldn't imagine Khrushchev saying yes. But it was the only way to stop XCOM, including his brother, from authorising military action then and there.
0: Not so much a trollop ploy as a shotgun wedding. Now Kennedy was in a serious situation. He knew the Soviets wouldn't accept an offer just not to invade. He'd already secretly agreed in principle to remove the Turkish missiles. He would suggested it to the Soviets in the first place but somehow he had to halt the military crisis he'd unleashed, which was now spiralling out of control, with war nearly breaking out accidentally every day. So at 8 o'clock that evening, he called a select group to his Oval Office. Bobby was there, Matt Bundy, McNamara, Sorensen, Secretary of State Dean Rusk, and three of their advisers. The other eight members of XCOM were not told. Even Vice President Johnson wasn't invited. This little cabal agreed that whatever XCOM had said, Bobby should meet the Soviet ambassador, Dobrinin, and secretly agree the Turkish deal.
1: But we want to point out that this 8 o'clock meeting in the Oval Office could have been held ten whole days earlier, when Adlai Stevenson had first floated the Turkey swap idea. As we've seen, the CIA had been discussing exactly this deal for months. The whole crisis could have been averted. As Secretary of State Dean Russ pointed out in the Oval Office, to the little cabal of ex men all they needed to do was to make it a condition that the Soviets keep the Turkey part of the deal secret. It got Kennedy off the hook of looking weak to the voters. It also meant that they would never have to own up to the rest of XCOM. There was an excellent chance Khrushchev would agree. After all, he would walk away with plenty to show for his escapade. And publicity meant nothing to him. The American public, which was the most important, would be told that the missiles had been removed in return for a simple promise not to invade Cuba, which of course the Kennedy administration would loudly and disingenuously protest had never ever been their intention anyway. All that could have been done 10 deadly days before, but then of course Kennedy's approval ratings would not have shot up as they had as he seemed to manage the crisis. So the offer was sent,
0: and the next day, 28th of October, day 14 of this drawn out, deadly crisis, Khrushchev agreed. The other members of XCOM congratulated themselves on toughing it out and facing Khrushchev down. They had no idea of the deal that had been done behind their backs. But according to the story told ever since, the crisis was, anyway, at last over.
1: It was anything but.
0: On 28th of October 1962, day 14 of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev agreed to remove his missiles if the Americans undertook not to invade and would get rid of the intermediate ballistic missiles pointing at the Soviet Union from Turkey. This last part he agreed to keep secret to save Kennedy's face in the run-up to the midterm elections. The Kennedys always claimed that the crisis was now over. The papers and news bulletins were full of their brilliant diplomacy seeing the Soviets off without a shot fired. The crisis was most definitely over, they said. Kennedy's approval ratings were back up to 74%, nearly as high as earlier in the year. Above all, things were looking good for the elections, now just nine days away on the 6th of November.
1: But in reality, the crisis was far from over. The Cuba Missile Crisis is always thought to have lasted 13 days. But in 2012, David Coleman published a book called The 14th Day. Now, he doesn't mean that the crisis went on just one more day. His book shows that On the 28th of October, that's the date Khrushchev accepted the Turkish swap, the Cuban Missile Crisis wasn't even halfway done. Khrushchev
0: had agreed to withdraw his missiles. But what exactly was he going to withdraw and how could anyone ever prove it? What the Kennedys would never admit was that they never had the faintest idea what hardware the Soviets had actually brought to Cuba. And since the Cubans would never allow them to go in and look, and flying over wouldn't reveal anything the Cubans had managed to hide in caves or long tobacco sheds, there was absolutely no way of verifying whether or not the Soviets ever kept their side of the bargain. The Americans had the idea of inspecting Soviet ships at sea, but it was a joke. The closest they would ever get was trying to take photos on a long lens. The US Navy sailor Peter Huchthausen remembers assisting a seasick photographer to climb an 80-foot mast for a slightly better shot. The Americans inspected other Soviet vessels by simply flying over them. At first, in fact, the Soviet plan was to leave much of their nuclear arsenal in place on Cuba. When the United Nations met at the end of November, therefore, Khrushchev could still have revealed that he had plenty of ammunition within range of the United States.
1: It included, for example, all the battlefield nuclear weapons that the Americans had never discovered and were never mentioned in the deal. Between them, they packed many times more explosive charge than the Americans had dropped on Hiroshima. It was certainly more than enough to prevent an American invasion. And it was enough to keep Castro on Khrushchev's side. It was perhaps even enough, as had been Khrushchev's original plan, to force Western concessions over Berlin... He might, if he played his cards cleverly, still achieve all his objectives. So why didn't Khrushchev go through with this plan to leave his nuclear weapons there? Weapons which Kennedy didn't even know about. The answer has nothing at all to do with Kennedy, Trollope or the Americans. The reason the Soviet nuclear weapons were taken off Cuba was entirely due to a private Soviet-Cuban drama that unfolded on the island once the 13 days were over.
0: Castro had been understandably outraged that Khrushchev had agreed to deal with Kennedy without once consulting him. He demanded that the Americans negotiate directly with him, that the Cubans' right to self-determination and to arm themselves be recognised. He wanted an agreement ratified by the UN. But Khrushchev, anxious to bring the crisis to a close, ignored him. But for the Cubans, the fight was just beginning. American-backed terrorist attacks on the island were brutal and increasing. You remember the figure from the American historians Blight and Brenner, 5,700 terrorist attacks on Cuba in 1962 alone, most of them probably backed by the CIA. Castro became so incensed at what he saw as the Soviet climb down that Khrushchev began to be afraid he might lose him after all. Castro was openly saying that Khrushchev lacked hones, balls.
1: Cuban crowds were chanting, Nikita, Marikita, lo que se da, no se quita, which... Politely translated means, Mr. Khrushchev, you're a little gay man and you shouldn't take back the missiles you gave us. Of course, this was 1962 and homosexuality was not accepted as it is now and was openly disapproved of by the Barbudos. Castro did nothing to stop the chanting.
0: So Khrushchev sent his deputy, Castro's old Spanish-speaking camping companion, Anastas Mikoyan, to soothe Cuban nerves. Mikoyan flew in on the 3rd of November, day 20 of the crisis. During their first meeting, news arrived that back in Moscow, Mikoyan's wife had suddenly died. The Russian was shaken, but decided to see his mission through. It won the deep respect of the Cubans.
1: They were locked in talks for 24 days. The translator got so tired, he began making mistakes, and Che Guevara pushed his pistol along the table and joked, I reckon there's just no other option for you. At first, Mikoyan told the Cubans that whatever they'd told the Americans, they were going to leave all the R 12 nuclear missiles on Cuba. They would be transferred to Cuban control. But as the days went on, Mikoyan changed his mind. He decided that Castro couldn't be treated like a Soviet puppet, like the compliant leaders of Eastern Europe. He had a mind of his own, and if they gave him nuclear weapons, it might lead to any one of a series of disastrous consequences. One of the key factors in the Soviet calculations was that the missiles didn't have permissive action links, which would have given Moscow joint control over them. If they handed them over to the Cubans, Castro could actually have launched them whenever he chose.
0: Already in Mikoyan's mind would have been the letter that Castro had sent to Khrushchev towards the end of the 13 days. It had been written in an all-night session at the height of the tension and was expressed in rather florid, veiled language. But in the letter, Castro seemed to suggest to Khrushchev that if the Americans looked like launching a nuclear strike on the Soviet Union, then the Cubans would be willing to accept launching a first nuclear strike on them, whatever the consequences for the Cubans themselves. It would be worth it to get rid of the American imperialists. While the Soviets were shocked, they sent the R-12s to Cuba as a diplomatic ploy. They never intended to use them.
1: Mikoyan was also alarmed to discover that Castro and his Barbudos were still committed to starting revolutions across South America. The last thing Moscow wanted was a trigger-happy nuclear-armed ally continually stirring up trouble with the Americans. Mikoyan's fears grew when, a couple of days into the talks, Cuban anti-aircraft gunners shot down another American plane. And finally, Mikoyan discovered that Castro was ordering his representative at the UN to reveal what he now regarded as his, Castro's, nuclear weapons. We would not only have thrown away Christoph's remaining diplomatic cards in the Berlin question, but would immediately turn Castro into a dangerous competitor among the communist countries.
0: Mikoyan took a decision. He would not, after all, leave any Soviet nuclear weapons on the island. During a long night of talks on the 22nd of November, day 39 of the crisis, Mikoyan informed the Cubans that he now understood that handing over Soviet nuclear weapons to another country was against Soviet law. Well, it wasn't. There was no such law. But Mikoyan announced that all the nuclear weapons on the island would have to be returned to the Soviet Union. The last nuclear missiles, warheads and bombs finally left Cuba aboard the Arkhangelsk on the 1st of December 1962, day 48 of the crisis.
1: In the end, the missiles had been removed for purely Soviet reasons. But they still left Castro with tanks, armoured vehicles, boats, cruise missiles, MiG jets and a good deal of other weaponry, more than enough to repel an American invasion.
0: But by now, Kennedy was keen to put the whole Cuban missile episode behind him. His brazen electoral ploy had nearly led to nuclear war. These did turn in a decent performance in the November elections. He'd lost four seats in the House of Representatives and gained four in the Senate. Not bad for midterm elections, and a lot better than it seemed likely a few weeks before.
1: But for Kennedy, the crisis wouldn't go away. Things were about to get a whole lot rougher. After 13 days of potentially world-destroying crisis, Kennedy and Khrushchev agreed on a deal and Kennedy tried to move on. But the impact of the crisis he'd allowed to develop went on shaking his presidency long after.
0: Just as nobody normally talks about the domestic American causes of the Cuban Missile Crisis, nobody normally talks about its domestic fallout either. In fact, Kennedy's image as the all-American hero didn't come until later, after his assassination in November 1963. At the time, his handling of the crisis seemed to convince very few. He faced a storm of criticism. The papers were so furious that Kennedy had surrounded himself with such deep secrecy that they began comparing him to Hitler. Four months later, in March 1963, they were still loudly repeating the accusation that he would actually allowed the Soviets to put missiles there so he could get the credit of removing them. In April 1963, Kennedy had to organise an away day with journalists just to try to repair the damage. But Republican politicians went on accusing him quite accurately of concealing how much Soviet equipment was still left on Cuba. And by September 1963, his approval ratings had fallen to 56%, his lowest ever. Meanwhile, a poisonous atmosphere filled the Pentagon. One analyst working there recalled a mood of hatred and rage. US Air Force Chief Curtis LeMay bellowed in the President's face, it's the greatest defeat in our history. For weeks, the
1: military went on shouting that they should have invaded, but they still should. And even more serious than the divisions within America was the fallout for US foreign policy. During that long day of agonising discussions in XCOM over whether to accept the Turkey deal, Vice President Johnson can be heard issuing a sombre warning to his XCOM colleagues. Johnson had said very little throughout the crisis, and he'd waited until Kennedy was out of the room. But then Johnson said, That Khrushchev's move was forcing them to, quote, "...dismantle the foreign policy of the United States for the last 15 years, just in order to get these missiles out of Cuba." It was a very perceptive remark from a much underestimated American, the man who would be president, of course, when Kennedy was assassinated.
0: Since the Second World War, the Americans had worked hard with diplomacy and military deployment and a great deal of money, martial aid, to construct a system of anti-Soviet alliances and friendships. But after the Cuban crisis, it all began to unravel. Trust in American ability to work with its allies and avoid needless nuclear escapades had been deeply shaken.
1: In Britain, there was outrage at a British Joint Intelligence Bureau report after the crisis that showed the US had planned to use nuclear bombers based in the UK in a preemptive strike and wouldn't have consulted the Brits first. The British Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, found himself under attack in the Commons for, quote, being prepared to enter into a nuclear war in support of an act of aggression by the United States. In February 1963, the French signed their own defence treaty with West Germany, ignoring the Americans. And in June, they quit NATO and started trade talks with Moscow. In the following years, the West Germans also adopted a policy of talking directly to the Soviets and ignoring the Americans. The Turks were outraged that the Americans were removing the missiles on their territory for no apparent reason. They were, they pointed out, NATO missiles and had never been Kennedy's to take away without even consulting them or his other NATO partners.
0: Kennedy found himself on the back foot. 10th of June 1963, he made a speech proposing a nuclear test ban treaty without even discussing it with the American military or the State Department. The test ban had been one of Khrushchev's objectives, a means of scaling down his military expenditure and also preventing West Germans getting their own nuclear missiles. The West Germans were outraged. Well, a fortnight later, Kennedy was in Berlin, giving his famous I am a Berliner speech. In Kenny's book on the American Presidency, using documents from the Presidential Archive, there's a facsimile of a record card Kennedy scribbled out on the plane. He writes out phonetically how to pronounce his famous phrase, Ich bin ein Berliner. Actually, school kids love to point out that what it actually meant was I am a donut." Since Ein Berliner is a type of pastry, Kennedy should have said Ich bin Berliner. And more important, his performance is usually seen as a defiant gesture, telling the people of West Berlin and Khrushchev that he would not abandon them. In actual fact, we can now see that what Kennedy was trying to do was limit the damage of his test ban announcement, which had come out of the blue and ended the West Germans' hopes for their own nuclear defence.
1: Ignoring West German protests, Kennedy signed the test ban treaty with Khrushchev on 5th of August 1963, It banned testing nuclear weapons in space, in the atmosphere or underwater, effectively preventing the Germans or any other countries developing their own nuclear weapons. Kennedy's American biographer, Robert Dalek, described it as, a public relations triumph for Khrushchev, because it was useless at containing the Soviet nuclear program, since they could now do their testing underground. Over the next four years, they caught the Americans up.
0: So, Whichever way you look at it, domestically or internationally, Kennedy had come out of the Cuba crisis disastrously badly. But his worst defeat was on Cuba itself.
1: So why did we say Kennedy's worst defeat in the crisis was on Cuba itself? Well, because since 1962, the Americans have spent an unimaginable amount of money and shed a shocking quantity of blood trying to dislodge the Castro regime and its successors. And yet the regime is still there. Cuba is still shrouded by a fog of disinformation, and it's a story that's rarely told. But to quote some well-documented examples, in 1969 and 1970, American scientists were actually trying to alter Cuban weather so that they could destroy the sugar crop, And in 1971, they tried to infect Cuban pigs. In 1976, a CIA-trained terrorist cell brought down Cuban Flight 455, killing 73, most of them teenagers. In 1978, the Cuban mission in New York was bombed. Even organisations sending medicines to Cuba have been blown up. There have been car bombs and shootings, even a bomb dropped from a B-26 aircraft. CIA-funded boats committed acts of piracy around the Cuban coast, and Fidel Castro himself survived more than 50 attempted assassinations. And if you don't believe us, in 2003, American philosopher Noam Chomsky concluded that up to that date, which was after 9-11, Cuba had been, quote, "...subjected to more terror than maybe the rest of the world combined." Just as shocking,
0: the United States continues to impose an economic stranglehold on the island. According to every relevant international body, the Americans' blockade of Cuba is completely illegal. Markus Wolf, a hard-line communist who was former head of East Germany's dreaded secret police, called the blockade a straightforward mistake in policy. Castro's revolution, he points out, was never a communist revolution. If American policy had been to allow Cuba to go its own social and political way, American influence would have been so strong. The Soviet Union is so far away. Over time, America would certainly have been the dominant influence. Despite 60 years of punitive blockade, the Castro regime and its successors continued to survive. They even train for free poor American medical students, on condition that once qualified, they return to work in the most deprived parts of the United States cities. Most recently, in April 2020, President Trump even prevented masks, test kits and ventilators for the COVID-19 pandemic sent from a charity from reaching the island. And when the US government took over two US ventilator manufacturers who normally supply Cuba, they were promptly told they could no longer supply the Cubans or indeed the Venezuelans.
1: We'd argue that Kennedy's bid to win a few more votes in the 1962 midterm elections rebounded horribly in his face. So did Khrushchev win the Cuba missile crisis? Well, he got some of what he wanted. Given the continued American terrorism, Castro unsurprisingly remained broadly within the Soviet sphere.
0: But it was touch and go. What American politicians never grasped was that relations between Havana and Moscow were always terrible. Castro only discovered later and by accident that Khrushchev had traded the missiles on Cuba for those in Turkey. He found the Soviets limited the oil they were willing to ship to the island in a bid to stop Castro's revolutionary ambitions in the rest of Latin America and Africa. The Cubans concluded that the Soviets were a bunch of has-been bureaucrats lacking the courage of their own convictions. By 1968, Castro was prosecuting leading communists on the island for treason. As we've said over and over, Castro was never a Soviet stooge. But at least Khrushchev could congratulate himself that neither had the Americans been able to take Cuba by force. Khrushchev had also got his test ban treaty, but he'd got nowhere on Berlin, and the Berlin Wall stood until 1989. Chairman Mao went on loudly accusing
1: Khrushchev of weakness, and within Soviet circles, Doubts began to grow. In their important book on Khrushchev, American historian Timothy Naftali and his Russian co writer Alexander Fesenko argue that the Cuban crisis was therefore a defeat for Khrushchev. But they also record that Khrushchev himself believed that, because of the crisis, even the Americans began to take him more seriously. And there's some evidence that he was right. At the United Nations in November 1962, more neutral countries voted with the Soviet Union than ever before. Back home on the 3rd of December 1962, Khrushchev told his Presidium that the Soviet Union was now a worldwide superpower. Quotes, we are members of the World Club. In his memoirs, he wrote, entertainingly mixing his earlier Uncle Sam's pants metaphor, he wrote, the American imperialist was forced to swallow a hedgehog, quills and all. I'm proud of what we did.
0: As Johnson had shrewdly predicted, Khrushchev's move had destabilised the system of alliances the Americans have patiently created since the Second World War. Neither Kennedy nor any future president could any longer bluster, as Kennedy had over Berlin, that if he didn't get his own way, he would launch a nuclear war. Recent Russian writers, like Andrei Kokoshkin, have argued that the Cuban Missile Crisis was, quote, inspiring, an overall success. The Soviet Union held its own against its enemy while lessening what it felt to be the nuclear threat from American missiles.
1: But if this was a success for Khrushchev, the Soviet apparatchiks at the time had more pressing issues to deal with, the Soviet economy was struggling, and Khrushchev's attempts at reform were ineffective and widely unpopular. On the 12th of October 1964, he was summoned to Moscow from his dacha. Two days later, the Presidium launched a scathing attack on Khrushchev's Cuba policy. They condemned it as gibberish. A mistake that, quote, damages the international prestige of our government, but helped, to quote, raise the authority of the United States. By the time Khrushchev left the room, he found that his bodyguard and official car had been removed. And there was no official funeral when he died in 1971. His son went to live in the United States. These days, ordinary Russians barely remember Nikita Khrushchev.
0: Unlike Khrushchev, however, Kennedy is still widely regarded as a hero. And for that, we have to thank Charlie Bartlett. Charlie who? Well, we'll discover next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.